This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. This is Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network podcast. And I'm having a conversation with Moshe Bar, who is a speaker at our summer school in, uh, in Barcelona. And, and Moshe, you... You started your presentation with um, a view on perception where, where you brought in, let's say, a key role for, let's say, prediction and, and top-down components. Yes. So what's what's the key observation and the key insight there? Well, you mean what brought uh, me to this conclusion, to this yeah. presentation? Yeah. So uh, first of all, it's not only mine, so I can't claim complete uh, uh, pioneering uh, movement here. But the idea here is that uh, we've known for decades that uh, most connections, if not all in the brain are reciprocal, they go in both directions. And still, uh, the idea of feedback hasn't been incorporated into mainstream thinking about the brain uh, sufficiently. So you see it here and there. But when you just open any textbook on perception and cognition, you see some kind of uh, an artificial boundary between perception and cognition. There's first perception that you can think of as the analysis of physical signals coming through to the brain through the senses. And once we understand what is it that we perceive, cognition kicks in. That's that's the old uh, traditional view. Cognition uh, kicks in as in memory, uh, attention, attention allocation, executive decisions, uh, and so forth. But there's actually no real reason why there will be a boundary between cognition and perception. And our and other... Uh, um, Others' idea is that actually cognition and perception are intertwined and they help each other whenever possible. And therefore, the bottom line is that what we see and what we perceive from our environment is to a large extent affected but by cognition and by memory and by why we, what we expect and what are our goals. So uh, cognition, uh, perception is not purely affected by the senses, but rather also with top-down uh, mm. uh, information. But now, would you be able to give a number to that? Would you say, look, under normal... 50-50. Op- 50-50? Yeah. It doesn't vary with tasks. Well, it does demands. vary. It does vary. No, of course So what's it the range in which this can vary? I think zero to a hundred. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. Uh, so I, we spoke, if you remember, towards the end of the, towards the, end of the uh, talk, people asked about meditation. And I think people that do meditation are actually 100% bottom-up. I think they they quiet down completely the top down effects, and um, there are interesting findings that uh, I think Similac or Eastwood—that's the name of the authors of these interesting studies that we called in the lab the Zen studies. Mm-hmm. They're not ours, but we just really love these these findings. And in these specific uh, search tasks, I believe they ask people to just lean back, relax, and let the uh, display come to them. And people improve their performance just by the fact that they're kind of quieting down their top-down expectations. So you look for T's among the among L's, and you perform better when you just lean back and relax and don't think about anything. So there are some cases where expectations actually might be bad for you, mm-hmm. especially when you when you have no uh, basis for your expectations. You know, they're right. completely uh, like me in the stock market, right? Mm-hmm. If I lose my expertise, there I'll lose my my house. So so whenever you don't have any expertise or whenever there is a situation that's completely novel or completely not not based on the past then it's better to quiet off the, the expectations and mm-hmm. this is a case where um, 
I would imagine it's 100% bottom-up and 0% top-down. Um, let's think about a case where it's only predictions. Well, I guess, or, or only top-down. I think it's when you plan, right? When you plan, you, you're kind of only planning. You don't have the input. You just mm-hmm. uh, sit down now and, and plan your dinner. You don't have any input other than uh, uh, from within. So I guess, uh, yeah, so I think it's roughly between 0 to 100%. Uh, right. But now, so so here we have the proactive brain, okay? Mm-hmm. And um, now the proactive brain would, in, in some form, um, go from sensor states to predictions. But now you used uh, different kinds of techniques, like uh, and human subjects, like fMRI and EEG and so on, to try to sort of disentangle these pathways a little bit. And a surprising result um, that that you um, presented. Was it in some sense, if we look at these, if you want, prediction pathways, that in some sense we, we, we jump outside sort of the, the traditional areas of visual processing? So it's, it doesn't seem to be restricted to just, let's say, the ventral stream and the temporal lobe, mm-hmm. but also to involve frontal areas. So, so it seems rather surprising to now include more frontal areas in, in perception. So how should I think about that? So, so uh, these findings don't necessarily mean that the prefrontal cortex is suddenly involved in perception per se, but it just supports what I said at the beginning of our conversation, that perception and cognition are not separated. And, and the, the, the role of prefrontal cortex in helping perception be accomplished is an example of cognition helping perception. So uh, something about these high-level areas in the prefrontal cortex and maybe anterior temporal cortex and other regions send down initial guesses to help the perception of, of, the, of the signal to be uh, accomplished uh, in, a quicker and more, in, in, in a quicker and more efficient manner. So the involvement of the OFC, specifically orbital frontal cortex, as um, we discussed yesterday, seems to be polysensory. So it's not that OFC is a visual area all of a sudden, but it's an area that helps predicting. And it helps predicting, uh, even though we didn't test it, but I, I believe that it, 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 it predicts also in other modalities, such as olfaction. And it also predicts in higher level events, not only detecting objects, but also preparing for a new situation or a new script. Uh, that's coming up. So um, an OFC, as we know, is also connected with the limbic system and people think about affect and about reward in the context of OFC. And we think that the reason people see activation in this prefrontal region, specifically in the OFC, in tasks that involve reward and affect, as well as in our own experimental predictions, is because what unites all these specific, all these different processes, even though they seem separated, uh, there's some a common element to all of them, which is a predictive uh, element. So when you're uh, estimating a reward or a, an effective value, you think about the future. You think about what would it give me, or what, how would it punish me, or what would we do for, for me or for anybody, what would be the outcome of a certain choice? So I think the OFC... Um, should more wholly uh, be seen as a, as a primary player in thinking about the future and predictions mm-hmm. rather in being specific to vision or to uh, affect or to reward. Okay, but then, so that means OFC, which is sort of integrating information from many sources, including vision, is is making predictions at, let's say, a behavioral timescale. So there would be seconds, not milliseconds, or both. Both. I mean, in our experiments, it was tens of milliseconds. So, right. yeah. So, uh, 
I don't know about the longer range, but I, I, I'm pretty sure that OFC is recruited also when people do what's called effective forecasting, when mm -hmm. people try to predict what would a trip to the um, Bahamas do to you if, you, you know, like if you're going in half a year from now. So it's far away, but still you can estimate, mm -hmm. even though people show that effective forecasting is something that we're not so good at. And, um, but nevertheless, I think that OFC is, respons is, is responsive or is involved in, in all timescales of predictions, not necessarily. Is there second. any upper bound to that, or that would also go to hours and days? As I said, with, with the VK, I, I didn't do an experiment, so no, I'm no, just sure, speculating. I understand. Yeah, but I don't see any reason why it would go elsewhere, this type of process, to mm -hmm. uh, depending on timescale, it would mm -hmm. go to another area. I think if, if there's a region that knows how to do this, it can be employed in all timescales. I don't see why not, but uh, mm -hmm. but okay. I can't say more than speculate. Yeah. But then, but but there's another element or, or piece of the puzzle that 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 you also revealed, which is that it's not that the OFC in some sense gets gets a very let's say rough impression of the world, right? It's not that it gets a high resolution mm -hmm. kind of impression, but it's a fairly rough understanding of the world. So okay. so what's going on there? So in the in the case of our experiments, which was in vision, what you're referring to was a, a low spatial frequency, mm -hmm. or you can think of as a blurred picture of reality, meaning that uh, we indeed, as you said, uh, OFC uh, is not uh, sensitive to the details, and it's not informed of the details, it just gets the gist. Mm -hmm. It gets the gist of a picture, of a scene, of a situation, and it's enough uh, to direct the more specified uh, expert type of cortex, in this case the visual cortex, how to behave, what to what to uh, focus the analysis on. Mm -hmm. So it's enough to say, hey, there is a blob in the upper right corner which is not expected. I guess you should uh, go there and analyze it mm -hmm. thoroughly because it might be something falling on my head or something like this. Mm -hmm. So uh, you're right completely that, that what we're saying is that it has a gist level understanding. But as I showed, I really like this um, picture of a street with a with a car in the middle and all of you guys knew that it was a car even though the picture is severely blurred so mm -hmm. our ability um, to understand these blobs uh, keeps uh, surprising me and, and I came to the conclusion where uh, give me a context and a low special frequency image and I know what everything in the in the picture is mm -hmm. of course if you, if you want to know a type of a car or if or identity of a person or something like this you'll need the details I'm not saying that the details are useless but for everyday quick decisions uh, low special frequencies seem sufficient in mm -hmm. many instances so your prediction would be that this would also hold for other modalities like if we look at audition for instance right it would also be let's say some low pass filtered version of an auditory world that mm -hmm. would enter OFC. Yeah, this would be my prediction, but mm -hmm. I would love uh, seeing it uh, done by somebody. But of yes, course. Yeah. <laughs> but then why why would it rely on this low-pass filtered version of the world? Why would it? Yeah, because it seems, look, maybe you gain a few dozen milliseconds because you can rely on sort of a bit faster pathways to get the information. Mm -hmm. So okay, here we go, OFC, we gain 10 milliseconds as compared to a fast processing or a high resolution processing pathway. So why would those 10 milliseconds be so critical? Crucial, yes. So uh, I used to think like this too, and it puzzled me. Why would, you know, it's not 10 milliseconds, a few tens of milliseconds, okay, but still. exaggerating, but, but still. still yeah. <laughs> just recognizing a chair, why would I need any heads? I mean, why would I need any advanced uh, warning? So... Um, 
there are two things here. First, it's the most trivial question, uh, answer, which is uh, this ability has evolved mostly for uh, uh, survival-related, more crucial uh, rec- type of recognition, like Ledoux's example, John, uh, John Ledoux. Uh, uh, example with a snake in the woods that you want to know if it's a snake or you don't care if it's a snake or a hose or it's just a type of a of a branch you just want to run away because in some very um, a very coarse level it already looks suspicious so we're safer if you just run away from it and analyze their high special frequencies later on uh, so in that case, getting half a second uh, head start over mm-hmm. the snake might be beneficial but um, I think there's something unfair about thinking, oh, you know what, the, the HSF will bring all the information anyway. Why do I need to rush? Um, the thing is that I don't, I, I don't think that there's much that can be done on, a, on an image with high spatial frequencies only. I have some pictures that I, I didn't show yesterday, but uh, kind of high spatial frequency only images that just... You can make sense out of them. You can look at them for hours, but you can't, and you can't make sense out of them. So you need this, the low spatial frequencies, but actually it goes back to your question of why do you need them earlier? So I guess I'll stick to the first uh, answer, which <laughs> <Okay>. is, uh, <laughs> yeah. That, but, that, but that seems that seems very funny, right? Okay, the results are there, so we don't have to debate the data. Right. But if you think about the brain as some sort of layered structure, where indeed you have structures like the amygdala that, that mm-hmm. Joe Ledoux has been mm-hmm. working quite a bit on, and there, the interpretation: Oh, the amygdala is actually really a fast, let's say, an alarm detector that rapidly prepares you for for action to to defend yourself against threats in the world. Mm-hmm. And now it seems OFC in this interpretation is like rather redundant compared to such a really fast responder like the amygdala. So uh, I think in the, uh, they share the information. As we know, they are connected sure. uh, uh, heavily, and I think they both share, I, I suspect they both share the same information, including low spatial frequencies. We've shown in other studies where um, it was initially an unrated study, but somehow it became linked to it. It was a study about first impressions, how people judge other people's faces. And we show the faces. We want to see how fast, how how first are first impressions. Mm-hmm. And we show them faster and faster and faster. And we found that people, even in the present masked presentations of, of faces in 39 milliseconds, were already able to recognize and, and categorize them as threatening versus non-threatening. Well, we didn't know what's the actual personality of these people. So this was just correlated with much longer presentations of a few seconds. So mm-hmm. 39 milliseconds were enough for people to be uh, accurate in their first impressions mm-hmm. to the extent that first impressions are accurate. Um, and then the follow-up experiment was to filter those faces because mm-hmm. our assumption or our hypothesis was that this uh, extraction of features from faces to infer certain you know, threatness or thre- whether it's threatening or not was based on low spatial frequencies, mm-hmm. of course. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's how we, f- we filtered, and that's exactly what we found, that mm-hmm. um, people, judge their, uh, people judge faces quickly, and they use low spatial frequencies for this judgment and not the high spatial frequencies. Right. So it's not only the speed, but also the content mm-hmm. that makes them... Uh, and, and we found that this activation was um, in the amygdala. 
Mm-hmm. So it was that, and I think others, I'm pretty sure actually that others have shown sensitivity to low spatial frequencies in the amygdala. Mm-hmm. So here we're talking about an OFC that's in a way an extension of the amygdala. You can say it's redundant, but you can also think about its anatomical connections and how it's a, a polysensory hub that gets information and sends information to so many uh, modalities at the same time. So I think it's important that if the amygdala has this a priori information mm-hmm. that can help um, make quick decision, decisions, uh, share this information with this area that can... Mm-hmm. Okay, but this is interesting, right? Because originally, when you, when you look at the story superficially, so from the outside, it looks like it's a, it's a story focusing on visual perception. So you think, okay, we have sort of a visual hierarchy, and that sort of sends information to the orbital frontal cortex, and orbital frontal cortex might be then generating predictions back to this sort of visual hierarchy to help it sort of resolve all sort of mm-hmm. recognition problems. Mm-hmm. But if analyzed in these terms, it sounds much more like, let's say, a parallel processing stream that, that is capitalizing on, on subcortical uh, processing like by the amygdala. So uh, which of these two views would you lean to? Is it, would you say both? Or it's indeed orbital frontal is more driven by the subcortical pathways or is it capitalizing well, other input streams? Well, I, I think, and I'm sure that you'd share this view, that the brain is pretty opportunistic in the sense that it will use any information it could to solve a certain problem. So I'm not uh, ready to commit to only subcortical or only cortical. I think it uses everything possible. We know from the anatomy that it gets more of this subcortical information. So uh, I'm happy to 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 uh, say that OFC or to, or to hypothesize that OFC indeed benefits from subcortical um pathways but at the same time we know that that uh, dorsal uh, pathways that have this magnocera type of, of information project to OFC and I don't see why OFC has to commit only to subcortical mm-hmm. or only, and in a way now you're bringing me to to uh, think aloud about another advantage of OFC over um, amygdala not advantage in a sense I mean we're not comparing them but information that OFC has that amygdala doesn't, which is more this cortical information that it's getting from the dorsal and from other pathways. So it can combine, integrate information from more sources than just the amygdala. Mm-hmm. Well, in some sense, OFC will be well-placed to modulate the amygdala in its mm-hmm. responses to these yes. stimuli. Mm-hmm. Because the amygdala needs this kind of control. Exactly. Right, or we're jumping all the time. Right? Seeing mm-hmm. snakes everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, but, so, but that might mean that this 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 interpretation of the, you exploiting information in the OFC to resolve the perception problem might actually not really be the right emphasis, right? So so maybe OFC is just exploiting this low frequency information, uh, accumulating if you want predictions, building up context information about the world mm-hmm. for more gen- general, let's say, action planning, something along these well, lines. Well, some right? people, yeah, some people talk about this and. Um and there's a, a chapter or a paper that, that I wrote with uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett that, that mm-hmm. talks exactly about how these predictions actually prepare the body. It's, it's more in the context of affect, but I won't be surprised if these predictions that, that are generated or triggered by the OFC are then disseminated not only to perception, but just you know anybody, any taker, any area that wants to benefit or can benefit mm-hmm. from it or get it, including, right. of course, but, preparation for action. But, but now, okay, so now I have OFC. OFC has been building up predictions, right? And predictions, as you said earlier, at multiple timescales. So... 
and then the example could be, let's say, the blurry car in the blurry street. So now I can say, okay, car in the street, and I have the following predictions about the building collapsing and Superman coming out of the phone booth and so on, right? Um, but now, if you think about context or uh, contextual memory, you very quickly end up with structures like the hippocampus. Mm -hmm. So first we looked at now the comparison with the amygdala, but in some sense, you could then also argue if OFC gives me contextual information, in some sense, I seem to be repeating a bit the job of my hippocampus, which we know is very much dedicated to the formation of these episodic memories. So look, I am in this street and I see the car and the building collapsed mm -hmm. and so on. So, so what's the added value now of OFC if I compare yeah. it to this notion of episodic well, memory? Well, at some point you stopped representing what I'm saying and you start saying something else. And I, I, I didn't really claim that OFC does context. It doesn't activate context. Okay. It makes it it triggers uh, predictions. I'm not even sure that the predictions themselves are the OFC, or rather, it sends instructions to the relevant cortex. What kind of predictions or what kind of representations are relevant? And just mm -hmm. bring them online and make it a, a prediction by bringing them online. So uh, uh, in, in the studies I showed in the second half of my talk, uh, where I talked about context, it wasn't the OFC anymore that was involved. It was another prefrontal region, the medial prefrontal cortex, mm -hmm. that was part of a network that included the, 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 the medial temporal lobe, especially the parahippocampal cortex, and the retrospinal area with the posterior cingulate. So there it plays, it, it, it's different than the role of the OFC, and we're still studying, actually, up to late, late night, late, late, late last night, I was corresponding with, with uh, two people in my lab about a review that we're writing, and we try to figure out what does the prefrontal cortex does in this, in this um, what does it do in, in this uh, type of a network of contexts, and uh, there are different hypotheses. It's it's still speculative, but I can you know. So I'm not sure uh, you want to hear them. But we think there are different types of contextual activations in the uh, medial temporal lobe and in the retrospinal, which some would be more um, sensitive to the specifics of the mm -hmm. context. So when, when I tell you kitchen, context of a kitchen, you can think about five, seven items, but you're not committing to a specific appearance. You know, the fridge can be stainless steel, or it can be white, it could mm -hmm. be on the left, it could be on the right. Uh, you know some basic stuff like uh, that, that, that the sink is concave and it will be on the, on the level of the counter. Uh, but other specific features you're not committing to because you need to see the actual exemplar, the specific kitchen. And then these blobs, these uh, slots are being filled with actual specifics. So there is a, a coarse or abstract representation of, of, of a context. People mm -hmm. in the cognitive psychology in the past called it schema, for example. So there is a schema or a frame of, of a specific context, and it's yet to be filled. You know, there is a kitchen, an oven and a, a sink and a refrigerator there but you don't know where and you don't know how exactly they look. So you give some basic information. So one part of this network is sensitive to the to the schema, and we think it's the retrospinal cortex, and together with the Lisa Eminoff and Dan Schachter, we, have some, we published some studies that support this, but the specific appearance and the specific properties of the context frame is filled up with details, and this happens more in the parahippocampal cortex and possibly also mm -hmm. in the hippocampus. So this is more sensitive to the end and with interactions with the visual cortex in the sense of a visual context. Uh, what the medial prefrontal cortex does here is, again, we think some sort of an integration, but um, we're far from being able to, mm -hmm. to make it explicit. Okay, but the concept would be something like 
a frontal area gives you more, let's say, a frame for integration, a more an abstract kind of representational scheme, mm-hmm. which indeed you might fill in also partially with predictions coming from your orbital frontal cortex, what have uh-huh, you. Uh-huh. But now to fill in those hooks <coughs> with concrete information, you have to rely on areas like parahippocampal area or even hippocampus itself mm-hmm. more than a visual hierarchy exactly. in the case of vision. This is a bit the concept. Yeah. Right? So frontal, yes. more, let's say, an abstract framework, there's a frame in which mm-hmm. you would integrate and sort of preceding areas really providing you with that with that content. Uh, well, yeah, what I was saying is that the retrosperineal actually, the, the medial parietal has is the one that involves the more abstract representation, the more abstract of a context frame, and the prefrontal cortex does some kind of integration. And we shouldn't forget also the, the time dimension, the mm-hmm. temporal domain where actually things in context don't necessarily happen simultaneously. Right, which, I wanted to ask you about that, yeah. because you present some interesting results on that which had to do with how these different areas actually establish specific phase relationships in their in their responses. Right. So so how is that informative about their interactions? That, that's very good. Uh, just before I get into this, uh, I don't want the previous uh, point to be lost. What I was talking about there was that context can be a spatial context of things that happen at the same time together in the same environment. But there's also a temporal dimension of things happening after things mm-hmm. or before things. So there's some kind of temporal order of, of uh, so a context is that if you hear a certain sound, you expect another sound afterwards, right? So um, uh, context can be in space, it could be in time. And back to, to your question, uh, this phase lock analysis that we're doing of, especially with MEG, it's much easier to do it because the signal has such better temporal um, uh, resolution, it allows us to infer, we can't really conclude, but but suggest and infer uh, patterns of connectivity that this can also be done with DCM and other methods also with MRI. But with MEG, we could look for areas that are co-activated with the same phase or with a, certain, with a fixed phase difference. And from this, we suspect that these areas do something together. They're open, they're, they're uh, um, active at the same time with the same in the same pattern and we took it a step further and i think it relates to a question you asked yesterday and we wanted to test causality so if area Mm -hmm. a and area b are activated in the same pattern uh, does it mean that one affects the other or uh, the other way around or there's a third Mm -hmm. factor here or they're just uh, synchronized as an epiphenomenon so using tools such as granger causality we could test which area affects um affects the others. So I really like these demonstrations, even though, again, nothing here is, is uh, completely conclusive because these are, these are, this is highly suggestive that, mm-hmm. that certain areas um, speak and affect uh, other areas. And it's interesting that in MEG experiment of this context network that I mentioned, I didn't present these results yesterday, but we find um, that objects that are highly contextual like the roulette that I showed yesterday, or a bowling pin, that are highly diagnostic of a specific context, this network of three main nodes is active and also uh, is highly correlated, highly highly phase-locked. These Mm -hmm. three nodes are highly phase-locked. If you show an object like scissors or a cherry that is not highly contextual, it's as common in our environment, even more common than a roulette, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) but uh, but it's as common and as, uh, you know, we equated in all dimensions that we can think of, um, this network might be somewhat activated because all of us have some associations with everything else. 
but it's not as diagnostic and as consistent. As a result, these nodes are not as synchronized. Mm-hmm. Uh, so me, supporting our, our suggestion that this network is related to contextual associations. But so we have, it, but it's essentially a three-node system, right? Yeah. What Would each node uh, provide a specific component of that context information in this case, following the framework we discussed earlier? Yeah. Okay. So... Mm-hmm. No, no, go, go ahead. Yeah, so that, that's the framework, that, that's the network that I was trying to ascribe functions to each node where we're talking about a schema or an abstract mm-hmm. context frame with, with slots that are yet to be filled, right. and then another node that involves the actual, that provides the actual features, the actual properties, and the third node, maybe the prefrontal cortex, that right. does the integration of some sort and maybe utilizes this information mm-hmm. to deploy uh, other areas with predictions. But now the synchronization across these three nodes is let's say a straightforward form of synchronization let's say they all start to oscillate in sync and that's it or do you see a more let's say fine tuning or let's say you will only see a synchronization within a certain frequency range and not in others and this is again node specific well i wish we could be so elaborate in our um in, the, in this first analysis, but I definitely can tell you that the asynchrony was in specific frequency bands, which I can't recall now, but it's a PNAS paper that came out a year or two ago. Um, so it was specific to a frequency band. It, just, it didn't just happen all over, mm-hmm. but um, I wish I could tell, and maybe in the future we will be able to say how this synchronization mm-hmm. is modulated um with different information there are some intriguing uh demonstrations that started like like many other good things started with with old uh, cognitive psychology so for example if i give you the word bank mm-hmm. you can activate two types of context frames as as uh as um we call them context frame. One of them is a bank with money and with mm-hmm. tellers and all these things. The other one is the river bank, right? When you think about fishing, jumping mm-hmm. into the water, vacation. So there, are t- for a given second or moment, there are two context frames that are active. And then if I tell you uh, bank, water, then it kind of disambiguates it, and you know it's the it's the mm-hmm. the bank with the river, not the other bank. So you suppress one context frame, you activate the other, and you're more committed to it now. So I bet if you could look at, and we did something like this with vision, also with with objects, and um, I bet if you looked at the synchrony of this network within this network during this process, you would see some some adjustments being made as. Two context frames are activated. One of them is suppressed. The other one is committed mm-hmm. to. So I would expect this synchrony, if it's related to the actual function, to be changed uh, based on this process. Right. But now, would you... Now, there are two interpretations of this, right? Because you could say, well, what you call the context frame could be like a, an emergent property, if you want, of this synchronized activity across your three nodes. Mm-hmm. Or you could localize it within one of the nodes and say, and the other guys are sort of piping information into it. Mm-hmm. So could you make, is it possible to distinguish between these two interpretations? Not at this point. I okay. think that they're equally likely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have a preference for any of these two interpretations? <laughs> or you... I like my interpretation with uh, black okay. coffee. and uh, <laughs> okay. No, I don't have any personal preference. Mm-hmm. No. Okay. I think that they're... Um, 
I mean, given what we know about prefrontal cortex, I, if I had to put money on something, I would put money on, on the interpretation that says that everything feeds into the prefrontal cortex and then it decides what to do and, and guides other areas. But uh, the data uh, doesn't don't show it yet, so uh, I can't commit to it. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So so now you, you also, so after dealing with this issue of, of a context network uh, that, that we now discussed, right? So... What are the ingredients of context in this? Are there boundaries to context information that, that you would consider in this network? For instance, you could say, well, context does not include information about self because context is only oriented towards the outside world. Mm-hmm. This could be a boundary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's interesting because uh, for a while we had a little debate uh, with a group of people that uh, ascribe specifically to the, prefo- the parahippocampal cortex role in place. And initially the criticism was, hey, what you found as contextual activation in parahippocampal is actually place, is spatial information. So for this, which was legitimate criticism, for this we had to design experiments uh, that differentiated between spatial context and context that's more abstract, like a picture of Cupid and and a heart-shaped chocolate box, right? So both of them has to do with uh, with romance, and you hardly see them both together. I never saw Cupid in my life, so you never see them together in the same place. So there are justice or other contexts that are not as physically uh, bound to each other and not necessarily spatially related to each other. So uh, so we proved our point that context, and especially in this network, is not limited to space-related context, but it did make us think about, okay, so what is context if it's not appearing together? Because it's so tempting and so easy to think about context as space, as things that happen together and um, and... And I started to think uh, pretty intensely about okay, what what defines context mm-hmm. if it's not space, and and and, and other construction definition that I'm that I'm uh, currently uh, uh, liking the best is that actually context to contextual relation is. Um, or contextually related are all the items that are activated together. So rather than looking at the environment, is looking at the brain. All the mm-hmm. things that are activated together as a result of one mm-hmm. of them appearing or occurring are contextually related. So if I if I use, if I show you a picture of Cupid, you activate other things that are related to it in your mind. Mm-hmm. And these are the things that that's the definition of context in my mind. Now, uh, self can and cannot be. I mean, mm-hmm. depending on the instance, because if you want to think about. Um, uh, the context of a cold shower right now uh you would imagine yourself in the shower i guess and you can you can uh i was more you thinking about some... you in the cold shower I... than me, uh, <laughs> at the beach <laughs> okay so so me in the cold shower okay so then it's not self it's uh yes but i think that self is just in that regard might be another another uh item mm-hmm. that could be okay. in and out but, but if you define it so broadly then contexts start to coincide with something like working memory, I guess, because you're saying anything that is active in the brain. Well, as a result of, of uh, relation, not as a re- result of, you know, if I give you a telephone number and you put it in your working memory, mm-hmm. that's not because the, the digits are contextually related. But just to finish the point about the self, if you don't mind, sure. uh, uh, we have to be aware of the, also of other people's uh, findings here that uh, this network 
of it's a medial network that we call the contextual network with the three nodes, the prefrontal, the, the medial temporal, and the medial parietal. As I showed yesterday, also highly overlaps with the default network. Mm-hmm. Right. And when the default network, uh, so we treat them almost as the same. And the default network has received a lot of attention recently of people trying to explain its function, trying to find a function. And one of the prominent uh, theories other than our own account of saying, oh, the default network is engaged in associative activation and the generation of predictions as in planning and simulations. Uh, but some, uh, there are some groups think that the default network does uh, self-referential processes, mm-hmm. things that relate to self. Um, so, so in a way, they'll answer your question, sure, context is self because it's the same network. Mm-hmm. It's activated both by context and by self. Um, yeah, but now if we, um, so, so indeed, so if we now slowly move then to, to this, this, this sim- possible similarity with the default network, um, so is the default network for you an epiphenomenon or it, it's sort of a, a real feature of, of brain dynamics that we should explain? Oh, it's definitely a real, uh, real, real feature, and it's intended. I mean, you know, you can't have third of the brain active so vigorously, mm-hmm. wasting so much energy as an epiphenomenon or something that's useless. I'm sure that, in my logic at least, or in my thinking, it has to serve a function. And in this case, this actually what it's what is what led me to think about the brain as proactive and as being continuously on um, on the move. Mm-hmm. to be ready, to be preparing for the future. And there are some uh, uh, interesting metaphors that I like to give, but they, they might have became uh, cliches by now. One of them is, for example, you know, playing squ- I like to play squash, and you know, in squash you have to be always moving, even if it's your other, uh, if your opponent's um, turn, you're still moving your feet. It's much easier to, to move into action from a moving, uh, mm-hmm. and then you know this probably better than I do. Uh, and in one of the introductions I wrote to either the book on predictions or the special issue we had, or one of them anyway, I compared the brain to F-16, mm-hmm. <laughs> showing my, my past with the Air Force. And and this type of, of uh, fighter jets that, because they have to be so agile and so maneuverable, uh, their steady state, in a way, is not steady at all. It's to be mm-hmm. really wild. And there, it's unlike Jumbo that you want to be, the Boeing, you want to be steady and, and, and not to have any abrupt movements. Here, in order to be agile, you want to start with a system that's easily uh, transforming to one position versus another. So, of course, it's a metaphor with a lot of uh, caveats, so don't take it too seriously. Mm-hmm. But, but that's how I like to think about the default network as preparing you, and it's much harder, it seems, to to go into action or into cognition or into some kind of a mental operation from a brain dead position mm-hmm. to rather than something that's already preparing, always thinking, right. always on the move. And of course, there are also I think the default network involves uh, a different time scales of planning and of thinking. So when you're stuck in traffic, you don't your your default network is not only thinking about the next second because this will be boring. It will be just like this second, but uh, it also thinks about this afternoon when you arrive home or this evening or or your dinner or you're uh, going out with friends afterwards or playing with the kids. It also involves thinking about the conference you're going to in two weeks or something that's uh, so different timescales. And there's something interesting that I want to say about this, even though I don't think I discovered, I, I discussed it in the talk yesterday. Uh, it's the issue of uh, simulations and the experiences that they, experiences in quotation marks, that they uh, afford us. So as we all agree, I think, um, we store in our memory 
our experiences and we stir them with the primary reason, well, there's no proof that it's the primary reason, but it seems that it's the primary reason or at least a primary reason of being able to use this experience in the future, right? So our behavior mm-hmm. in the upcoming seconds or minutes or years is based on what we've learned and encoded. So in a way, experience helps us um, store scripts that sometimes can be action plans or motor plans, and sometimes it could be in, in conversation, sometimes it could be in dance, in playing basketball or, or anything like this. So we use our experience, our memories uh, for the future. Now, the default network, this, uh, this area of, of just sitting there and, and, and you know, stuck in traffic or waiting for your uh, doctor or uh, being in a shower, you, you create new experiences, again, with quotation marks. So you make simulations. You sit on a plane. I have a funny example, but what can I say? That, that's what went through my mind. I'm sitting on a plane and reading, a, reviewing some manuscript, and I'm thinking, what would happen it was a very long flight. What will happen if this door opens up and all of us are starting to fall? Right. So I'm thinking, oh, I'll, I'll take this blanket that's on my lap and I'll use it as a, as a parachute. Mm-hmm. But, oh, it might slip from my hands, you know, if I'll be sweating or whatever. How do I make holes? Oh, I have this pen that I'm holding now. So, of course, the chances of this happening is one in a zillion, right? But let's say less surreal uh, simulations. We also think about other things now, right? What happens if, uh, I don't know what, the the electricity uh, Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, drops. Yeah, Hmm. so uh, we'll be able to manage, right? But if, Mm -hmm. if let's say, if if we both now simulate this in our mind, we think, oh, we'll just use the iPhone for making some uh, light and then we go out and uh, call somebody, right? If it happens now, we'll be more ready than people who didn't simulate this. Mm -hmm. They'll probably also do it, but just a little later. So uh, these simulations are an amazing way of creating experiences without experimenting. So Mm -hmm. uh, Popper said that he he lets his hypothesis die in in his behalf. Mm -hmm. So you generate all these hypotheses and you choose the right one and that's the one you store. And now when there's a situation, if it happens, then you're ready for it even though you haven't experienced Mm -hmm. it. So I think this is very powerful. It almost allows you to just sit in your couch and experience everything Mm -hmm. in life and just store it and be ready for many things. But would it be surprising that then this default network is it's a relatively large, large number of neurons are involved in this, but still it's only a relatively small subset of your whole brain, and it's not necessarily engaging, let's say, all possible areas that, that might provide you with memory or with contextual information. Or, for instance, you could think about the so-called mirror mechanisms, which again would be running in different systems than than this default state network. Mm-hmm. So. So are you then saying that the brain is running a a number of substrates that support simulation or are they sort of interlinked in some way? That's an interesting question. So first of all, the the classically defined uh, um, default network does involve the the medial temporal lobe. So, you know, an area that but we know that the entire brain is busy doing memory. So it's Mm -hmm. not only that. So I would suspect that if your simulation involves smell, it will uh, recruit at least momentarily the, the olfactory uh, uh, cortex or, or auditory cortex, depending on what you're doing on the visual cortex. What's what's the way the the the, the um, 
default network is defined is average across many subjects and many situations. So I would suspect that all these uh, momentary recruitments of specific of specific uh, cortices or expert uh, cortices is kind of washed out in the averaging. Mm-hmm. It's a possibility. Okay. And what you see is the major mechanism of mm-hmm. these simulations, but you don't see these extensions that are recruited on and off. Right. So, so but then how do you see the role of uh, let's say subcortical structures to this uh, to the default network if it's the big simulator of the brain yeah so i think it just uh it falls under the category of what we said now about specific cortices so if you simulate mm-hmm. a situation that might be scary i won't be surprised if you're recruiting your amygdala during the process right. but i don't think that traditionally the amygdala will be a uh, part of this mm-hmm. default network okay. only when you, when the simulation or the content of your thoughts uh, pertains to anything that the amygdala does. Mm-hmm. Right, so that would mean what we now call the, the default network is really like, let's say, a very rough, let's say, backbone of exactly. the simulation exactly. structure. Yeah. And then let's say when you are alert and acting, it gets sort of blown up into your context network mm-hmm. or it s- sort of starts to elaborate into this context network. And then when you become inactive and relaxed again, it sort of falls back in this mm-hmm. default state mode again. This would be roughly the model. Right. Right, yeah. okay. So, but... If, so for other views on the brain have focused more on, let's say, sentence-safelik theories, right, where you would say, well, cognition relies very much on, let's say, the integrative properties of basal ganglia. Um, so in, in, in your mind, um, in your mind, let's say it's the default network that has this sort of core integrative powers that, that provide us with, let's say, the contents of, of cognition and possibly consciousness. This is really the... The starting yeah. point of that or not. Yeah, and people have talked about the default network in the context of consciousness, but I want it to be clear that uh, I, uh, you you make it almost sound like like we know what's going on. <laughs> no, you're, you're the expert at posing the questions. <laughs> but gradually, uh, we're starting both to believe that we know what's, what we're talking about. So uh, it has to be clear that... that that we don't, and that the same type of simulations, I won't be surprised uh, if, if different types of simulations are happening in the basal ganglia mm-hmm. or other areas. So there's a lot of work that, that still needs to be done uh, in order to, to you know better carve these this different processes. Uh, what I said was uh, pertaining specifically to this default network, but uh, it doesn't exclude similar processes from taking place in other structures. Mm-hmm. Right. And then... Um what is the overlap, really? So the, the default network has largely been characterized using fMRI, right? And the, the yeah, even bulk... though it started with PET, but that's, PET, that was yeah, the first but, demonstration. Right. But yeah, you're right. But that means slow signals, mm-hmm. right? So so what do we know about, and let's say, the correlates of this default network at faster timescales? Right. So uh, people only now starting to look at the default network in uh, high... Um, temporal resolution modalities such as MEG and EEG. And one of the reasons is that uh, its majority is in the medial surface, which is hard to kind of dis- disentangle in uh, in uh, methods such as MEG. But now as methods with MEG improved, we can start uh, differentiating different medial structures. And But I don't think, at least I'm not aware of the, the temporal characteristics mm-hmm. of the default network, other than it's active all the time. <laughs> but... Right. but uh, how does it change over time? It'll be interesting to explore, yeah. Okay. So, but then the in the last part of your talk, you sort of moved away 
but okay, there was sort of if you want an associative link from the, the, the we go back to orbital frontal cortex. We go also back to let's say the role of the orbital frontal cortex in in affective processing, uh, possibly mood, and then you made a step towards depression and and, and the, the study of depression. And that's how this, so this sounded a bit surprising because a bit like, okay, how does this now relate to this notion of contact? So, mm-hmm. so what is the relationship between, let's say, contextual processing, prediction, and now depression? Yeah. So, um, it started, this link started by, by, uh, me reading somewhere that people in depression, and I had no interest in uh, depression or in the psychiatric disorders back in the day. Uh, to my embarrassment, but I was reading this uh, this interesting notion that people in depression have hard time incorporating context. They don't analyze the broad context, and uh, with all our focus on context, I felt the need and the obligation to try to explain what in depression is related to to this context. And we started thinking more and more about uh, symptoms, especially cognitive symptoms, and symptoms uh, that characterize the pattern of thinking of of depressed people. So for example, depressed people tend to ruminate. So they stuck in the same topic or the same thought over and over and over. So it's a cyclical type of thinking. And and this immediately uh, sounded like the opposite of broad associative activation. So we expect, uh, and we know that the healthy brain goes from one thought to another and it's very associative. So unless we're busy and focused on a very narrow task momentarily, uh, the brain really goes from one thought to another. And here we have a population that is focused on the same topic in a, in a clinical manner. They really go on and on and on. So this already showed some kind of linking. And um, and from there, we started looking for all this. We've accumulated all this, some of it circumstantial evidence, and some of it is fresh evidence from my lab that shows relationship between mood and associative activation, specifically as it relates to context and to predictions, associative as in context and its prediction. So um, when I say circumstantial evidence is that when you have a hypothesis like this, that this population will suffer from a lack of foresight, uh, and you open the literature and you see a couple, well, not enough, but still a couple of demonstrations that people with um, with depression um, show deficiency in uh, in in foresight that supports this idea, but we also show that, uh, first of all, we can, uh, together with Malia Mason, a paper that came out in JP a couple of years ago, that shows that if you make uh, even healthy individuals think narrowly versus think broadly, you can improve uh, their... There, it can improve their uh, their mood significantly, not in a major way, but it's, it's definitely um, statistically significant. So uh, that's another way of supporting uh, this idea, and um, and and overall, we we find more and more. So, for example, we showed with MRI. We haven't published this yet, but we show with MRI that uh, people with depression don't recruit the context network with the same efficiency. So we're thinking that, uh, or other thing that I showed yesterday, that treatment of depression affects regions that we activate also with the context, with the context, with context stimuli. So there's all this evidence that kind of uh, converge and uh, we would like to to, um, 
to bring it to fruition one day mm-hmm. and actually help people. But for the time being, it's more an experimental and it's something that's more in the, in right. the lab. And, and, uh, and uh, showing that, uh, the, I mean, the crux of this hypothesis is that broad association improves mood and narrow associations do not. And it also relates to inhibition because as I showed yesterday, it's hard to show it without a, a slide, but, um, that part of the reason we suspect it's a hypothesis it's not uh, proven yet but part of the reason why their brains is so ruminative and so focused and not associative is because of hyperinhibition that according to this hypothesis comes from prefrontal cortex structures so this hyperinhibition makes them less associative it doesn't let their thinking process uh, broaden up like the, the healthy brain so if we could affect levels of inhibition or if we can train people to think more broadly maybe we can bring about some alleviation of their symptoms in depression but as i said before it's, it's very far mm-hmm. from this and we're still on the basic level but what's the causality there exactly because some of you're saying like okay we have let's say control from frontal areas on the parahippocampal area which is let's say more an associative kind of network and this let's say allows uh, more or less let's say lateral thinking if you want or, or let's say more or less flexibility in, in an associative process and if you restrict this too much, you get rumination, and then this leads to mood disorders like depression. This is the causality that you have in mind, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. But I could also argue that it might be the other way around, because you've got to look, mood is related to effective processing, to neuromodulation. Neuromodulation has a quite direct impact on, let's say, lateral interactions in cortical areas. So um, a mood disorder leads to a deregulation of the neuromodulation that allows lateral interactions among let's say, associative states in the parahippocampal area. Mm-hmm. Could you exclude that interpretation? No, actually, I embrace it. I think that uh, we talked yesterday about this chicken and egg, as you call it, the uh, issue of uh, it could start from the molecules and come all the way up mm-hmm. to pattern of thinking. But what we do here and bring to the table is uh, the optimism, so to speak, of uh, the thought that you can actually start the other way around. You can start from the highest possible level of pattern and thinking, and maybe by training and changing the pattern of thinking to be more broadly associative, you can o- affect all the, the depressed brain all the way down to the same molecules, the same dopamine and serotonin. Mm-hmm. So it might be naive, but it's worth trying, and that's right. what we do. So just Im- imagining that this hierarchy goes both ways. Mm-hmm. But then this also, then, I guess, takes inspiration from the fact that we know that cognitive therapy works pretty well on, on, on a large group of depression patients. Is, is yeah. that indeed the case? The only reservation I have is with the word large. So the problem with okay. cognitive behavioral therapy is that it's effective, but only for a very small percentage of people. So you have to understand, and I think I told somebody like yesterday that after I wrote my first paper about depression, a colleague, good friend of mine said, I could tell you never had depression because uh, uh, you have to, to know this population better in order to to uh, be able to explain uh, this behavior. And you realize that people in severe depression are not really motivated to even go to a psychiatrist, let alone sit on a couch and introspect and think about their pattern of thinking and now fighting this pattern of thinking. So anything that addresses this population or attempts to improve their situation has to be minimally demanding. Mm-hmm. Because it's a population that the nature of their symptoms is not to be involved and, and not to be active. So uh, a method such as CBT, I think, is on the right track. But what it misses is this 
uh, the larger part of the of the population of the press that is just cannot be engaged mm-hmm. so the the question is can we take elements of CBT and break them down in a way that's less demanding and I think in a way there are some overlaps between what we're saying and what CBT and I think uh, uh, just um, based on what we know about the brain maybe we can just Uh, uh broaden their thinking pattern without you know no questions asked no, mm-hmm. don't introspect and don't fight your thoughts and don't change the topics or the enemy in your thinking pattern just just be associative just mm-hmm. you know play with these games that we'll be developing or something like this and this will be more automatic and less demanding and, mm-hmm. and less uh, asking less of the patients and maybe it will be efficient for a broader uh, part mm-hmm. of the population but do you have any evidence today? That would suggest that that would work well other than showing uh, that the press don't recruit a contextual network well of course you can ask who knows if it's a uh, trainable maybe this this is right. a one one-way mm-hmm. ticket uh, and the other thing that we've shown is that with healthy individuals we can improve mood by associative uh, uh, thinking what is missing is to show that depressed patients are less depressed with broader associative thinking but mm-hmm. that that's something we're working on but it's not something that happens fast mm-hmm But now there are also correlations between, let's say, just physical exercise and, and the alleviation of depression, which would argue against your No, it's your not. It's not, no? actually. Okay. It's not. Maybe that's why you and I are so uh, happy because of <laughs> running, even though you run much more. But uh, there is actually a, a, a big wave of publications, in, including in popular media. The New York Times likes to write about it, likes to write about it, uh, about the effects of running on mood. And... Uh, Independently, there's this issue of neurogenesis, the growth mm-hmm. of new neurons uh, in, in dental gyrus within the hippocampus. And of course, it's somewhat controversial or at least uh, uh, still not yet to be proven completely that these new neurons actually assume a function. But assuming that a neurogenesis does something, there is uh, clear evidence that running improves or facilitates the growth of new neurons in the data gyrus. Uh, in- interestingly, fluoxetine, SSRIs like Prozac, uh, also increase the growth mm-hmm. of neurons in the dented gyrus. So we have two things that are, in- that are parallel and affecting uh, the- this uh, critical structure in the hippocampus in a similar manner. So take F- SSRIs or take running, it almost exerts the same. Uh, uh, well, I can't, of course, commit to this. I didn't do the research, and I'm not sure there are They are uh, are comparable in terms of magnitude, Mm -hmm. but it's tempting to think of how uh, exercise, especially aerobic exercise, Mm -hmm. weights don't exert the same... the same effect on neurogenesis. So, but, uh, but what's interesting about it, it would be, let's say, the argument earlier was to say, look, we can take a cognitive route. We can try to change thinking patterns and from there affect mood. Right. While the, the, the exercise example would say it is more, let's say, from the bottom up, from the body itself and mm-hmm. action itself, so mm-hmm. completely non-cognitive, that you can also affect mood. Right. So uh, we're getting into a situ- a, 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 an interesting topic that I'd like to talk about. If we have time, sure, I can I can expand on this. So I think that, see, that the SSRIs like, like Prozac affect, if I remember the numbers correctly, about... 30 to 50 percent of the patients so you ask yourself well these are brains brains are brains why would some respond to this SSRIs and some are not and i think it goes back to the lifestyle of the press as i said before and i think this is completely speculative so mm-hmm. nobody writes down anything i say now so uh, uh, the idea there is that um 
all this criticism about neurogenesis, how do we know that these neurons assume a function? Well, I think that if they grow in the morning because you took drugs or you ran, I mean, SSRIs or you ran, and you have new uh, uh, neurons in your dented gyrus now, they won't connect to any uh, network unless you engage them. Otherwise, you go to sleep, they die, and then in the morning you start this process again. So you need to engage them. So in order for improvement from SSRIs or from running, I think two things have to happen. You grow new neurons and you connect them to existing networks. Mm -hmm. And I think they are connected to existing networks by, excuse me, doing something else in addition to just having them grow. So right. uh, uh, mm -hmm. learn something, play mm -hmm. something, or et cetera, do social interactions. So I think that um, only running won't be enough. If mm -hmm. you just run and then you go back home and you just lie mm -hmm. on the couch until tomorrow morning when you run again, I don't think you'll have the mood benefit. Mm -hmm. If you just take SSRIs and you sit on your couch and not do anything, maybe that's a population that is not benefiting from SSRIs. So I think you have to be both socially mm -hmm. or intellectually engaged at right. the same time to... Um, give these new neurons a better chance of being engaged mm -hmm. and being uh, recruited to a network. And just one slightly unrelated but still important to emphasize is that I didn't uh, uh, talk about the fact that this dendrite gyrus, I mean, it, it's part of the default network. The hippocampus mm -hmm. is part of the same network that's being activated by predictions, by the default network, by contextual association. So that's uh, pretty intriguing that, mm -hmm. that this growth of new neurons and effect on mood come from a structure that that uh, that both loses its uh, volume and, and, and mass uh, mm -hmm. with depression, uh, and also aging, by the way. So who knows, it might affect, might help uh, Alzheimer's in the future, but or uh, cognitive decline with aging. But in any event, with the depression, uh, uh, we hope that this uh, associative thinking to combine with, with maybe running or combined mm -hmm. with uh, what we just said that depressed people don't do much ah. so <laughs> make them go out run well it depends it's a spectrum and some people right. uh, will do more mm -hmm. than others and I think many are uh, interested in, in uh, alleviating their symptoms anyway but there would be an interesting let's say difference between the SSRI case and the running case because in the running case you would also be driving your grid cells because you're moving in space providing an input into the dentate gyrus so while with the SSRIs that would not be the case mm -hmm. so that means in the running case you might actually also facilitate the embedding of these neurons in active networks well for purely SSRIs that would not be the case yeah that's an interesting line of thought and I think it has to be um tested more rigorously because I mean I've been thinking myself about the difference of the benefits for running if it's running outside versus running on treadmill I hate running on treadmill but I'm, I was wondering I wasn't thinking like you about the the, the, the uh, enterorhinal and the grid cells which is an interesting line of thought and I have to consider it too uh, I was thinking more about the change of scenery mm -hmm. and how it in a way activates more and more concepts and or maybe also associations so it kind of it it's also intellectually pleasing in a sense that it it engages more and more items in your cortex than just running in front of cnn you know on the right on the treadmill so if they run in front of flow fields basically and green fields yeah. and the television so you can try this in your virtual reality lab yeah, exactly. right just yeah, well. benefit uh, from treadmill treadmill with um VR or just running outside. Of course, mm -hmm. outside has multiple effects. Of it's course. also fresh air and all this. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But okay, that's in the future. But now, do you believe that, how do you see the basic science you're doing on this um, depression? Or let's say the networks that are correlated with, with depression, like the default network and the mm -hmm. context network. How is that basic science translating in an impact in the clinic right now? How do you see that? 
You mean beyond what we're trying to do? Yeah. Now, well, the, the work you're currently doing, when do you see that really impacting the clinic? When it's going to hit the clinic in some form? Well, I, I can't predict. You know, as much as I like predictions, <laughs> I can't predict this. But we're definitely uh, engaged in collaborations with clinicians and with psychiatric, uh, um, like the DCRP at, M at MGH with Maurizio Fava and other big and important and smart uh, psychiatrists that are interested, which, which mm -hmm. uh, also shows you the state of... Um, the interaction between basic level neuroscience and psychiatry. I think that psychiatry could benefit from knowledge that we are acquiring in neuroscience and the other way around, that neuroscientists mm -hmm. can make their work more relevant and more applicable if they understand more of what's going on in the clinic. Uh, but I can't commit to how quickly. First of mm -hmm. all, we have to show in the lab that we can improve the state of depressed individuals with our methods and maybe improve our methods. Um, uh, there have been attempts to to make our ideas uh, commercialized, uh, but I, I'm not. I wasn't too um, too ecstatic about it just because I want to see more proofs. And once mm -hmm. we have this in the lab, I think that you know we'd like to make it uh, widely available. You know, right. people can benefit from this. Okay. So, so Moshe, to to finish up, um, so you, you you made quite a a tour through the brain in some sense. Broadly associative. Really <laughs> exactly, and also. Uh, revealing some really core core properties of of the brain. Uh, so, given your experience in, in brain research and understanding of the mind, what would be uh, Moshe's law? Hmm. Well, it would be uh, make no laws <laughs> ahead of time. I don't know. I mean, if I if I had a law in mind now, it probably would have been. Um, yeah. No. It's this is your chance. Uh, well, it will be when it's proven. It will be my chance, <laughs> not when I'm predicting it. But yeah, no law for you. Really? Okay. <laughs> so there's no Moshe's law. Not now. Okay. <laughs> and then what's what's the key prediction that you feel most strongly about today? That so if I come to visit you there uh, in, in the outskirts of Tel Aviv, no, that's where yeah, we are. Yeah. Uh, five years from now, and say, okay, Moshe, this was your prediction you made in 2012 September. Um, What's this one prediction that you are feel most passionate about today? That the state of psychiatric uh, patients will be much better. Mm -hmm. Okay, That's very a prediction. good. <laughs> Moshe Bar, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you. It's a pleasure. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomedics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European Seventh Research Framework Program. For interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.